Section 7 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 50 Driven Back Across the Rubicon, Part 2. The debates on the bill brought out some speeches which have not been surpassed in the parliamentary history of our time. Mr. Bright and Mr. Gladstone were at their very best mr bright likened the formation of the little band of malcontents to the doings of david in the cave of adullam when he called upon him every one that was in distress and every one that was discontented and became a captain over them the allusion told upon the house with instant effect for many had suspected and some had said that if mr horseman and mr lowe had been more carefully conciliated by the prime minister at the time of his government's formation there might have been no such acrimonious opposition to the bill the little third party were at once christened the adullamites and the name still survives and is likely long to survive its old political history mr gladstone's speech with which the great debate on the second reading concluded was aflame with impassioned eloquence one passage in which he met the superfluous accusation that he had come over a stranger to the liberal camp was filled with a certain pathetic dignity the closing words of the speech in which he prophesied a speedy success to the principles then on the verge of defeat brought the debate fittingly up to its highest point of interest and excitement you cannot he said in his closing words fight against the future time is on our side the great social forces which move on in their might and majesty and which the tumult of our debates does not for a moment impede or disturb those great social forces are against you they are marshalled on our side and the banner which we now carry though perhaps at this moment it may droop over our sinking heads yet soon again will float in the eye of heaven and it will be borne by the firm hands of the united people of the three kingdoms perhaps not to an easy but to a certain and a not distant victory this speech was concluded on the morning of april twenty eighth eighteen sixty six the debate which it brought to a close had been carried on for eight nights the house of commons was wrought up to a pitch of the most intense excitement when the division came to be taken the closing passages of mr gladstone's speech had shown clearly enough that he did not expect much of a triumph for the government the house was crowded to excess the numbers voting were large beyond almost any other previous instance there were for the second reading of the bill three hundred and eighteen there were against three hundred and thirteen the second reading was carried by a majority of only five the wild cheers of the conservatives and the adullamites showed on which sword sat laurel victory every one knew then that the bill was doomed it only remained for those who opposed it to put a few amendments on the paper as a prelude to the bill's going into committee and the opposition must succeed the question now was not whether the measure would be a failure but only when the failure would have to be confessed the time for the confession soon came the opponents of the reform scheme kept pouring in amendments on the motion to go into committee these came chiefly from the ministerial side of the house as in eighteen sixty so now in eighteen sixty six 
the conservative leader of the house of commons had the satisfaction of seeing his work done for him very effectively by those who were in general his political opponents he was not compelled to run the risk or incur the responsibility of pledging himself or his party against all reform in order to get rid of this particular scheme all that he wanted was being done for him by men who had virtually pledged themselves over and over again in favour of reform the bill at last got into committee and there the strife was renewed lord stanley moving an amendment to postpone the clauses relating to the county franchise until the redistribution of seats should first have been dealt with this amendment was rejected but not by a great majority mr ward hunt moved that the franchise in counties be fourteen pounds rateable value instead of gross estimated rental this too was defeated lord dunkellin usually a supporter of the government moved that the seven pounds franchise in boroughs be on a rating instead of a rental qualification the effect of this would be to make the franchise a little higher than the government proposed to fix it houses are generally rated at a value somewhat below the amount of the rent paid on them and therefore a rating franchise of seven pounds would probably in most places be about equivalent to a rental franchise of eight pounds therefore the opponents of reform would have interposed another barrier of twenty shillings in certain cases between england and the flood of democracy prudent and law-abiding men might accept with safety a franchise of eight pounds or even say seven pounds ten shillings in boroughs but a franchise of seven pounds would mean the red republic mob rule the invasion of democracy the shameful victory and all the other terrible things which mr lowe had been foreshadowing in his prophetic fury lord dunkellin carried his amendment three hundred and fifteen voted for it only three hundred and four against it the announcement of the numbers was received with tumultuous demonstrations of joy the adullamites had saved the state lord russell's last reform scheme was a failure and the liberal ministry had come to an end lord russell and his colleagues tendered their resignation to the queen and after a little delay and some discussion the resignation was accepted it would hardly have been possible for lord russell and mr gladstone to do otherwise their reform bill was the one distinctive measure of the session it was the measure which especially divided their policy from that of lord palmerston's closing years to abandon it would be to abandon their chief reason for being in office at all they could not carry it they had got as far in the session as the last few days of june and everything was against them the commercial panic had intervened the suspension of the great firm of overend and gurney had brought failure after failure with it the famous black friday friday may eleventh had made its most disastrous mark in the history of the city of london the bank charter had to be suspended the cattle plague though checked by the stringent measures of the government was still raging and the landlords and cattle owners were still in a state of excitement and alarm and had long been clamouring over the insufficiency of the compensation which other classes condemned as unreasonable alike in principle and in proportion the day before the success of lord dunkellin's motion the emperor of austria had issued a manifesto explaining the course of events which compelled him to draw the sword against prussia a day or two after 
Italy entered into the quarrel by declaring war against Austria. The time seemed hopeless for pressing a small reform bill on in the face of an unwilling parliament, and for throwing the country into the turmoil and expense of another general election. Lord Russell and Mr. Gladstone accepted the situation and resigned office. The one mistake they had made was to bring in a reform bill of so insignificant and almost unmeaning a character. It is more than probable that the difficulties Lord Russell had with the Whig section of his cabinet compelled him to compromise to a degree which his own inclinations and his own principles would not have approved, and to which Mr. Gladstone could only yield a reluctant assent. But if this be the explanation of what happened, it would have been better to put off the measure for a session or two, and allow public opinion out of doors to express itself so clearly as to convince the Whigs that the people in general were really in earnest about reform. No reform bill can be carried unless it is sustained by such an amount of enthusiasm among its supporters in and out of Parliament as to convince the timid, the selfish, and the doubting that the measure must be passed. In the nature of things, the men actually in Parliament cannot be expected to enter with any great spontaneous enthusiasm into a project for sending them back to their constituencies to run the risk and bear the cost of a new election by untried voters. It will therefore always be easy for the men in possession to persuade their consciences that the public good is opposed to any change if no strong demand be made for the particular change in question. Now the compromise which Lord Russell's government offered in the shape of a reform bill was not calculated to stir up the enthusiasm of any one. The ardor with which in the end it came to be advocated was merely the heat which in men's natures is always generated by a growing controversy and by fierce opposition. The strongest and most effective attack made by the opposition, that led by Mr. Lowe, was not directed against that particular measure so much as against all measures of reform, against the fundamental principle of a popular suffrage, indeed of a representative assembly. As soon as the doubtful men in the House discovered that there was no genuine enthusiasm existing on behalf of the bill, its fate became certain. When the more extreme reformers came to think over the condition of things, when their spirits were set free from the passion of recent controversy, very few of them could have felt any great regret for the defeat of the bill. Those who understood the real feelings of the yet unenfranchised part of the population knew well that some administration would have to introduce a strong measure of reform before long. They were content to wait. The interval of delay proved shorter than they could well have expected. The defeat of the bill and the resignation of the ministry brought the political career of Lord John Russell to a close. He took advantage of the occasion soon after to make a sort of formal announcement that he handed over the task of leading the Liberal Party to Mr. Gladstone. He appeared indeed in public life on several occasions after his resignation of office. He took part sometimes in the debates of the House of Lords. He even once or twice introduced measures there and endeavored to get them passed. During the long controversies on the Washington Treaty and the claims of the United States, he took a somewhat prominent part in the discussions of the peers, and was always listened to with attention and respect. 
about a year after the fall of his administration he was one of the company at a breakfast given to mr garrison the american anti-slavery leader in st james's hall and he won much applause there by the frankness and good spirit of his tribute to the memory of president lincoln and by his manly acknowledgment of more than one mistake in his former judgments of lincoln's policy and character lord russell spoke on this occasion with a vigour quite equal to that which he might have displayed some twenty years before and indeed many of those present felt surprised at his resolve to abandon active public life while he still seemed so well capable of bearing a part in it lord russell's career however was practically at an end it had been a long and interesting career it had begun amid splendid chances lord john russell was born in the very purple of politics he was cradled and nursed among statesmen and orators the fervid breath of young liberty fanned his boyhood his tutors friends companions were the master spirits who ruled the fortunes of nations he had the ministerial benches for a training ground and had a seat in the administration at his disposal when another young man might have been glad of a seat in an opera box he must have been brought into more or less intimate association with all the men and women worth knowing in europe since the early part of the century he was a pupil of dugald stuart at edinburgh and he sat as a youth at the feet of fox he had accompanied wellington in some of his peninsular campaigns he measured swords with canning and peel successively through years of parliamentary warfare he knew metternich and talleyrand he had met the widow of charles stuart the young chevalier in florence and had conversed with napoleon in elba he knew cavour and bismarck he was now an ally of daniel o'connor and now of cobden and bright he was the close friend of thomas moore he knew byron and was one of the few allowed to read the personal memoirs which were unfortunately destroyed by byron's friends lord john russell had tastes for literature for art for philosophy for history for politics and his aestheticism had the advantage that it made him seek the society and appreciate the worth of men of genius and letters thus he never remained a mere politician like pitt or palmerston his public career suggests almost as strange a series of contradictions or paradoxes as macaulay finds in that of pitt he who began with a reputation for a heat of temperament worthy of achilles was for more than half his career regarded as a frigid and bloodless politician in ireland he was long known rather as the author of the ecclesiastical titles bill than as the early friend of catholic emancipation in england as the parent of petty and abortive reform bills rather than as the promoter of the one great reform bill abroad and at home he came to be thought of as the minister who disappointed denmark and abandoned poland rather than as the earnest friend and faithful champion of oppressed nationalities no statesman could be a more sincere and thorough opponent of slavery in all its forms and works and yet in the mind of the american people lord russell's name was for a long time associated with the idea of a scarcely concealed support of the slaveholders rebellion much of this curious contrast this seeming inconsistency is due to the fact that for the greater part of his public life 
lord russell's career was a mere course of seesaw between office and opposition the sort of superstition that long prevailed in our political affairs limited the higher offices of statesmanship to two or three conventionally acceptable men on either side if not sir robert peel then it must be lord john russell if it was not lord derby it must be lord palmerston therefore if the business of government was to go on at all a statesman must take office now and then with men whom he could not mould wholly to his purpose and must act in seeming sympathy with principles and measures which he would himself have little care to originate lord palmerston complained humorously in one of his later letters that a prime minister could no longer have it all his own way in his cabinet men were coming up who had wills and consciences ideas and abilities of their own and who would not consent to be the mere clerks of the prime minister great popular parties too he might have added were growing up in the country with powerful leaders men whose opinions must be taken into account on every subject even though they never were to be in office it is easy enough to understand how under such conditions the minister who had seemed a daring reformer to one generation might seem but a chilly compromiser to another it is easy too to understand how the career which at its opening was illuminated by the splendid victory of the reform bill of eighteen thirty two should have been clouded at its close by the rather ignominious failure of the reform bill of eighteen sixty six the personal life of lord russell was consistent all through he began as a reformer he ended as a reformer if the might have beens were not always of vanity it would be reasonable as well as natural to regret that it was not given to lord russell to complete the work of eighteen thirty two by a genuine and successful measure of reform in eighteen sixty six end of section seven